you were when you were in for you know it was 22 years. You had a long time to figure yourself out. Mm -hmm. I guess. But so, at what point did you feel this sort of, or did you feel this sense of just sort of, I'm on my own in here, this loneliness, or, or something? Did you? I mean, how did you? How did you navigate that? Well, like my first. My first six months, my first couple months in prison was the most depressing time for me. And uh, going back again to transparency, transport people, um, I share with individuals when I, when I speak about this journey um, that there was a period of darkness in me where I actually thought about suicide. I thought about taking my own life because of the despair, feeling that sense of despair and hopelessness and being in a controlled environment that, that washed over me um, for a period of time where I was able to, one of the guys in prison who was like a mentor to me, uh, saw me spiraling, you know, into that, into that rabbit hole of depression. And I remember one night he, uh, he spoke to me, he was like, hey, um, I see you're doing certain things that, that shows that you are like depressed, um, possibly suicide, because I was collecting pills from the, um, the staff to maybe just do an overdose, right? But in that, uh, he, he came, he called me one night. I mean, I, I was on the top bunk and he was on the bottom bunk in the prison. And he talked to me and he started sharing with me about faith. Like, what, who's God? And having a sense of belief would give you a sense of resolve and resilience and help you get through some stuff. And I was, I was always raised in a level of faith, believing in God. But I think that when you're facing those type of moments, that's when your faith really is tested and you you know you have a choice to even either embrace the faith or not and i chose to embrace the faith and that began to lay a foundation for me um a, a foundation of giving me that inner will inner strength to push through and push the walls of darkness and help bring about a, a different perspective of it so your your way out of this sense of just it started with God. It started with faith. Faith became the foundation for for me, and and with that faith, you know, and with faith, I started knowing that it was it was okay, that I had something that I had I had something to believe in that gave me a, a, a sense of focus and centered centered me right, and from there, um, that faith triggered a chain a shift in perspective. So it was no longer like the, the gloomy, dejected type feeling. It was now a fear, a spirit of optimism, you know. Um, and I remember reading a book by Steve Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And he mentioned about in between the, the situation, there's a, there's a choice there, right? And that's when you, you have this shift in thinking. So for me, I knew that I was in prison, possibly with a, I had a 3% chance of ever being free. But in that, in between that was serving life in prison, I had a choice. And that choice was to be happy, change my perspective and how I saw prison instead of seeing prison as the place of punishment, I saw it as an opportunity for growth. And with that over a period of time, doing like journaling through journals of gratitude, uh, starting a gratitude journal, those were the things that shifted my perspective. I no longer saw prison as punishment, I saw it as an opportunity for me, you know? That's a very interesting perspective. Yeah. That's, that's, that's cool. You don't really hear people say that about prison, you know? It's, it's the, uh, I think it's the antithesis of what people think prison would be, mm -hmm. an opportunity. Yeah. Um, but do you think that applies to 
Absolutely. I mean, the pandemic is like, I remember when it first hit, when the pandemic first hit, right? And people were no longer had this mobility to go and do what they wanted to do. Couldn't go out to eat, hang out with friends. It was like, it was an isolation period for, for people. But for me, uh, I looked at it as like, if they just change their perspective, like you no longer busy, 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 busy. You have an opportunity now to sit back and, and reassess your life. Like this is a pause moment for you to reassess. And, and in that reassessment, you can begin to do some really deep dive into yourself because like in prison, it was prison eliminated the distractions from the world. And the same thing with the pandemic, the pandemic isolated you, it elim eliminated the distractions for some people to do a deeper reflection on themselves, whether it's their, their spiritual growth, start setting goals for themselves, start reading a certain amount of books. To people who've never read a book, now you have an opportunity to read books, do personal development, start scaling up yourself, your business, whatever. Not only that, but then see an opportunity for you to, to increase your financials, your finances because you're not spending money no more. So it was a lot of things that I know I did in the pandemic early on that was even, it was a connection with the prison environment that I was in because I was in a controlled environment for 22 years. Same thing out here with the pandemic. You're living in a controlled environment. Now, there's limit things that you can do. So there's a lot of contrast there. Why do you think that people, uh, I mean, I think a lot of people probably did do that. I mean, it seems especially, uh, I, I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, there's lots of jobs out there, uh, lots of people are hiring, and it's like, yeah, but they're crappy jobs. Like, mm -hmm. that's why people aren't flocking to them. Nobody right. wants to, you know, work for $9 an hour, mm -hmm. you know, when they don't have to. You mm -hmm. know? Uh, especially if you're going to get abused by people when you say, you get your mask on, and somebody mm -hmm. starts giving you a bunch of shit. Mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't really work that well. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, I think a lot of people also that just at this point, they just they're tired of it. They're angry about it. You know, it's just people want to be done with it. So why? I. I mean, yeah. of course they do. You know, but why do you think people might not have actually taken this opportunity to sort of turn? It's perspective. Like we have been, I think that most people in our society have been conditioned to not do a lot of introspection. We're more externally, we, we look for things externally to validate us, to connect, to bring a sense of happiness, right? But that's the reason why I think some people didn't really take full advantage of the, the pandemic. For me, being someone who was incarcerated for such a period of time, I remember that there would be days that we would get on a lockdown. Lockdown meaning that you had, not only were you living in a controlled environment, your environment now was even more limited because you were stuck. This room that we're in right now was bigger than my cell, right? This room is bigger than my prison cell and it's two people had to live in this cell, right? But I remember that when we got locked behind those prison doors where we were in a room, a small room that may be within arms, six by six, whatever, right? That's the type of room we lived in for two and three months because of the prison got locked down because of some altercation. And I remember that I would always use that time inside of the controlled environment to read. I would always have a list of books because I'm like, oh, we on a lockdown. I mean, again, even though it was a controlled environment, now I'm, I cannot move. I don't have no distractions. So this is a time for me to read books, to get back to into myself. And, and that's where I was able to grow versus out here. People were not trained and educated about the power of self going and doing that inner personal work 
that will allow them to find a level of happiness so that when the prison doors will open for me, uh, outside of me being in lockdown for three months, when it would open, I would walk out of there with a completely different perspective. I would walk out there feeling a little more confident about myself, um, seeing the environment. I had an opportunity to work on programs to help other individuals who are currently incarcerated with me. And, and that's what it was, you know, um, versus some people, they just don't see that. They don't, and it's come down really to the perspective you're, you know, I'm glad you said this because you sort of lead, you, you, you sort of walk right into my next set of questions. Mm-hmm. I think was I was talking to somebody who um, it was an academic who, who, who a criminologist who studies prisons and things. And one thing he told me, what I found very interesting, was he said that there are some prisoners he would like to talk to, but they're too damn busy. He can't like they're they're always doing something. Yeah. And he yeah. said, and these are the people who manage to get through because they have something to occupy the time. Yeah. You know. And so I, I'm interested when you just said that. It's like you, you found you found a thing within yourself, obviously. Yeah. But you also found that within yourself you wanted to go and help other people. Yeah. So, I mean, do you think that's something that, do you think that's a lesson for people in the world out yeah. here that we should probably be doing? Is yeah, find purpose. Like, purpose gives you, gives you direction. Gives you, like, utilization of time. So when I found my purpose, my time of incarceration was not it was way bigger than just serving time. It was about how do I serve people, right? And and that was a that was a difference that cut made the cut between me and those who were that were in prison. It was a small number of us who started serving other people versus serving time. If that makes sense, those who were serving time they remained idle in the prison. They they allowed the things in the environment to entertain them, you know, um, versus me serving people from the purpose I started serving people that gave me an opportunity to give back find a sense of peace a sense of gratitude that that gave me that level like okay you're doing something in spite of how dark something may look yo you're really helping someone else out and that made a difference for me that made that was a game changer from pain to purpose it was a game changer for me <laughs> I'm not supposed to have opinions on things, but it's just the idea of serving people versus serving time is a very powerful statement. Yeah. You know, and I think that's because I, I mean, with myself, I, I've found this out that um, we, there are a lot of like state holidays that we will work and we bank those days off. And, mm-hmm. and we, at the end of the year, that's when we get the time off. Well, this past Christmas to New Year's, it was like 17 days, wow. which sounds great. You're even paying to the offer 17 days or whatever. But after about five days, mm-hmm. there's nothing to do. The, the Omicron surge was huge, you know. And I, I just want to go out and yeah. I don't have anybody with me except my dog. Mm-hmm. And I love my dog to pieces, but how many walks can you take? You know what I mean? So, and she's not a conversationalist. So, um, so at some point, I just kind of thought, like, wow, I feel really, really cut off. And I, I mean, I, I just started feeling, does anybody care? Does anybody, mm-hmm. you know, uh, does anybody think of, or, like I'm trying anything? Like, is anybody around or, you know, whatever? I ended up writing a book, um, <laughs> you know? Uh, so it was just like, okay. And, uh, but the, the thing about, the reason I'm telling you this is because I, I think the thing that got me was, it was like, I, I was able to find a lot of things to do for myself. But I did also kind of what you just said there. It's like I started thinking, 
I have to actually get out of this house and do something somewhere else. You know, so it's like I started inquiring and say like the, the Humane Society, you know, mm -hmm. to a volunteer or something. Yeah. Uh, or maybe to the soup kitchen mm -hmm. or something and just get the hell out of the house yeah, and, yeah. and do something. So I think there's something like, and I feel so much better having even just thought it through. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and, and, and you know, about to go through orientation and stuff like that. It's like, okay, there's some kind of purpose out there. But yeah. I think a lot of people just don't, especially in a, in a volatile environment, mm. you know, where you talk about very controlled and yeah. probably there's a lot of tempers that are just ready to pop at any given time that what's the wrong thing said. So how might you think, you know, with you know, you got your purpose in mind, you got your direction in mind, you got your, your idea of okay, I'm I'm serving other people, but how do you still navigate that sort of that volatility where, where things might blow up in any just do in, inside of prison you you can't prevent the violence that would take place in prison. And and it's easy for you to like for me, there were times that I was in a situation because of the association and just sometimes you just a bystander in prison. Things can happen. But I, I, I never was completely consumed by the violence in my environment. You know, meaning that I act actively participated in it. The only type of things that would have affected me is that when we get completely locked down, right? And I would have to now because individuals inside of the prison, because of how I carried myself in prison, is all about your character. Just like out here, your integrity matters in prison. If you are a man of integrity, you can navigate through some of the most sharkiest waters in prison, right? And that's the same thing out here. Like integrity, your character matters. So that that protected me, kept me away from a lot of the stuff that was taking place in prison where guys who were known to carry out certain riots or violent activities, I would be one of the first persons that they would notify, right? Like, hey, uh, this is about to go down, bro. You might not want to come here today because this is happening. We can't stop it to protect you. You know, and that's how it was like that for me for the entire 20 something years of my incarceration. Never got into a physical altercation with someone other than my only first physical altercation was when I first went to prison. And that's rare for a person to do 22 years in prison and never got into a fight. Like literally, you know what I'm saying? I, and I take pride in that, you know, um, because no one never came to the point where they wanted to violate me or I felt like I needed to violate them because it was about the integrity. With that purpose, I moved with a level of purpose. And in that purpose, I moved with integrity and people started seeing the value in what I was doing. And they saw the authenticity in it. So how that, how does that translate out here? The same thing. You build relationships with people. You, When you move with purpose, you move with integrity, people will come to respect that. You know, and you it carry you places like my dad always was telling me that respect will carry you places where money will never carry you. And that was true inside of the prison, and it's even true out here. So my level of integrity and respect for the men, I was able to navigate all of these sharky waters and do what I needed to do. Your dad sounds like mine. Uh, yeah. In that sense, I mean, whatever what my. My dad had died a few years earlier than my mom, and mm -hmm. mom, when I brought her back from the hospital, um, and uh, the neighbors didn't know who I was, you know, and um, they came out kind of like, what are you, what are you doing with it? Like, like they were kind of like, mm -hmm, what are you doing with it? I'm like, it's my mother. And I'm like, 
this is your mother? I was like, yeah. like, so Mr. Morgan was your father? And I was like, usually how it works, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> And like they got like they're like yo come here a second and like and people were calling people and I was like this is this is this is Mr. Morgan and everybody came out to tell me how great they looked. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. they had no money and it was just like, but Dad was the kind of guy like you know he he helped them get in the house when they locked their keys out or something like that or he gave somebody a ride to work or mm -hmm. something and like and everybody was just like your mom is protected you know that and I'm like I didn't but thank you that's, yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. good to know you know so and and the neighborhood had gotten. They had a lot of things like break-ins, fights on the street, stuff like that. You know, mom never had a problem mm -hmm. because, kind of what you just said, yeah. they respected my parents you know, yeah. because they were good people in the neighborhood. So, yeah. um, so I, I, I appreciate that. You know, uh, that, that's, a great, that's a great line. Um, um, I wanted to ask, did you, did you see the other side of this when, when it came to, say, the, the sort of isolation? Did you actually see loneliness, emptiness, despair, isolation really eat somebody in, in prison? Like, like, yeah. How, I, mean, how did it, I don't want to say, like, how did it look, but how did I mean, it look? I mean, you, you, you know, in prison, you had cellmates. You had people around you that you saw because they wasn't able to uh, go within to find that and didn't have any uh, things externally to help numb the pain. Uh, meaning drugs, alcohol, women, you know, all of these different things that we see in our society that we find to uh, to numb us from whatever we felt, feeling at the time. And that's how I was in prison. A lot of guys didn't have those things, and it, and it caused them to spiral really fast into a level of depression, suicidal thoughts. You see them cutting their wrists, trying to hang themselves, um, trying to find medication to just numb the pain. And with that, it started affecting their mental health, you know. Um, and inside of the prison environment, you would see that where uh, individuals spiral so far out that they are now, that mental health is exacerbated to a point now where you see they're harming themselves, they're putting feces on themselves, they're doing all of these different things because of just that level there, right? Could, like I said, could you imagine being stuck in a small cell that is not as, my arm reach may be, a little too much of a space, right? And you're stuck in there for 24 hours a day, seven days a week with maybe someone walking, no human interaction, right? Um, only interaction you may have is someone sliding food through a door and you're getting the food. Um, you don't see them, you hear their voices. That stuff starts messing with your mental, your mental state. And again, not through, not understanding, learning some, uh, I call them survival tools. Uh, to help develop and find that inner peace. Most of them don't have that. They, they never became the same when they walked out of, out of prison, out of solitary confinement. That's the impact that, that they struggled with um, for years. And, and, and one example I was just um, sharing with someone about Khalif Browder, um, if you're familiar with his story, uh, a young guy that got locked up in Rikers Island, you know, um, and got out because of the, the type of torture and stuff that he went through in prison. Oh, he's, he's a speaker now, right? No, Khalif Brown, he killed himself. Oh, 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 oh. If you get a chance, look him up, right? Khalif Brown. Yeah, Khalif Browder. Browder. Okay. Yeah, he actually is just one of the examples of so many individuals who went to prison and could not cope. The coping skills wasn't there because of the age that they were in. It was just a volatile environment being assaulted every day by staff, by other though others who are currently incarcerated with them. It affected him. Like a couple years later, he could not push that 
depression and, and a way that he actually committed suicide in his home and killed he killed himself. And that's just the thing that we see and we don't hear enough about is the impact of those who in that despair period of their lives incarceration and some of them transition out of prison and still didn't learn the different coping mechanisms of survival. They end up like taking their own lives because of how overwhelming um, the, the depression is or whatever they're going through. Um, that's a tragic story. I, I mean, I, I don't know why I'm thinking I know the name sounds familiar. I'm sure I must have heard this first, but like I, I just I'm thinking of a I guess somebody who is a, a speaker now. But yeah. um, well, you mentioned survival tools. I mean, like what do you, do you have like a, a like a set of them? That you yeah, share my survival schools. I mean, like I would think like some of my survival um, tools was uh, prayer, meditation, um, books, like reading books, journaling. Uh, finding, you know, that why and who you are and then sh in uh, giving back. You know, one of my mentors, uh, Chaplain Patoka, uh, inside of the prison taught me the law of reciprocity, right? The, the paying it forward. Those were like, that particular message was life-changing for me. So when I would think about a survival, is like you say, when you are like isolated from the world, you found like, how could I go give back? Some people think that you have to have a lot of money to pay it forward. You don't, ne not necessarily. You give what you got. So mine was time, right? My, my, my currency in prison was my time, my intellectual uh, tools. Uh, uh, yeah, my intellectual gift that I had in art articulating, sharing a message with the men in prison, helping them find hope through what I call the five stages of incarceration. That was me giving back. Um, and now to this day, that what is like a reciprocity, I give what I have and when I need, whatever I need is going to come back to me. And so with that, I started having mentors that would come outside from outside um, the prison to start mentoring me about just personal development, business, just life to prepare me for my life on the outside. You know, like whenever I would ever get a chance to be free. God favored me to have some great mentors um, to help pour into me because I was pouring into the men and it was like the law of reciprocity. I give, now God's going to bless me to get from a higher source, which were mentors who had great skills to allow me to pour more into others. gifts are yeah. we all have a gift like I didn't have money in prison I don't have money now right but one of the things that I that translate from prison to here is that you meet people where they are and you give what you can mine is time and my lived experience 
If I can give you anything of value, it will be that. The lessons I've learned in my experiences and just me being present to help you better understand. So when you talk about like path redemption, like to go back into a prison and share my story with men who are serving long prison sentences, right? Where they feel dejected, feel despair, you know, wanting to give up, thinking about suicide, but have not verbalized it yet. To me to walk back into that prison and say, hey, my number, my prison number is 187018, right? I was sentenced to life at 19 years old. Here I am today standing before you and letting you know that all things are possible. That right there is a game changer for a lot of people in prison. Even out here, when people say, hey, you did 22 years and you're still doing, how did you survive that? Again, my key thing with the survival is the five things that I just mentioned with you, is finding something that you can go within yourself, um, whether that is your faith, whether that is through meditation, yoga, whatever it is, go within yourself because no one can give you peace your wife, your children, your dog, none of that can give you really peace, man, right? Money, you find the most wealthiest people um, who's free and leading the free world, they don't have a level of peace if they don't go in. And you find a lot of them, once they accumulate all of the mass and cars and did all of that, you start seeing their goal within. Look at Bill Gates, right? Look at these individuals who are billionaires, they're the most wealthiest people in the world. And they could have anything materialistic, but they choose not to. So they practice that law. What? One, finding inner peace within self. Two, finding a cause, finding a purpose that you can connect to and give back to others. That's the satisfaction for Bill Gates or Melinda Gates who's doing what they're doing, right? You know, um, they could be living their life in some small island that they own and they can have everybody cater to them. But they see the power, Warren Buffett, the power of paying it forward gives them more peace. And there's a lot of lessons we can learn from that. But most people, they see it, they aspire to accumulate the wealth that these individuals have, but not really paying attention to the lessons that they're giving you. That wealth is great, but with wealth, you can't carry it with you. But with wealth, you can change the world. And that gives you a deeper level of gratitude by whatever. You may not have billions, I may not have billions, but you have an experience, you have a gift that you can give someone and help change their life and their life changes and then changes someone else. And now you have a domino effect of you just what? Picking paper up off the side of the road. Now you're paying it forward. Now someone else is gonna do it. Someone else is gonna do it so that the day they may not see you do it, somebody else may say, hey, he's not doing it. Let me go do it. That's the beauty of you paying it forward. It was a Native American saying, I don't remember exactly how it goes. But something along the lines of like only after all the rivers are poisoned and all the uh, all of the uh, all, all, the, all the ground is toxic, you'll learn that you can't eat money. Mm. It's like it's something like that. It's a yeah, very yeah. it's a very profound statement, but yeah. it's kind of like and I, I'm right there with you. I'm actually, when you were talking, about, I wasn't thinking about Bill Gates. I was thinking about um, did you ever see Ace Ventura the movie? Ace Ventura? Mm -hmm. Okay, the guy who directed that when he made that it was a big hit. He made a pile of money. Yeah, he bought a big house. You know, he had his initials um you know like in stone on the floor you know yeah. whatever, all that kind of stuff and he said he went home one day and he walked into his house and he said this is like he just kind of like he couldn't figure it like what was he doing and he just sold it mm -hmm. and he went and bought like some modest place sort of out and you know he had like was a little bit of land or whatever like that and he just lived this extremely modest life mm -hmm. he got out of hollywood because he thought this is Everything he had, it's like he, he was he was a big deal. He had money, everybody loved him, they thought he was funny, they thought he was a great director, blah, blah, blah. And he was just kind of like, I don't care about any of this. Like, it's just that he found it in here. So yeah. 
I did. Okay. I did. I did study Buddhism. Buddhism. Yeah, because okay. you say a lot of things. That yeah, because it's really more inwardly. You know, when you think about how it actually evolved, is you know, just knowing the history of it is through meditation. Finding inner peace within self will be able to define everything for you. When you find that peace in your life, there's nothing that. You become unmoved, right? You become unmoved by what's going on around you. So going back again to the conversation we just had about being in a volatile prison environment. Once you find inner peace, the, the correctional officers don't have control of you. The guys who are currently incarcerated, those who are incarcerated with you, don't have control over your life because you have a choice in how you respond to it. And I remember like thinking... Like, you know, office correction officers sometimes the worst, right? You know, and then you have some good correction officers. But then you have some of them that they will come to work with a, with a chip on their shoulder. Now you're dealing with the attitude of those who are locked up with you. And now you're dealing with correction officers who bring their personal problems to work. And they would do things to try to, like, trigger you. You got guys who are in prison, they're trying to trigger you. So going back again to that, in that, in between that, those things that stimulate you, you have a choice. And that and that choice is based upon your inner connection to who you are and to your higher purpose, right? So there were times that I remember just sitting there and I just like was able to ignore them. Like, like, I'm good. And I thought about like Nelson Mandela, like on when he was on Ruby Island and the the, the officers there did everything they could to pick to to tear him down. Like they would deny his mail. They will open his mail because they saw that mail meant everything to him, right? So what they did, they was like, oh, this this is how we can get to him. So we'll control his mail. So they will hold his mail back for weeks until they give it to him. So what Nelson Mandela chose, he reversed it on him. That no longer he would ask them about the mail. Is that they would slide the mail through the door and he would let it sit there for weeks, even though he was eager to see what it said. But what he did, he shifted the power. He regained the power back, right? And the correction officers, the environment didn't have control over him. And I remember reading that story and I was like, wow, I'm going to practice that. Because when you give people control and they know what, you, what your power is, I mean, what, 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 what you need, they can control it, especially in an imprisoned environment. So I no longer started asking for mail. I didn't like, yo, you got mail? Because that opened a door. I started having that self-discipline to be content with where I was. And go back into the initial question about how that applies to those out here. Learning again, be content with what you have. And that requires you turning the TV off, turning the music off. Go walk in your backyard, something you have not done until COVID hit. Enjoy your backyard. You know, in um, the African tradition, grounding, was is key to like meditating, like meaning taking your shoes off, taking your socks off, and walking and grounding yourself with the earth, right? That's how I remember like when COVID hit, I enjoyed doing that. Going every morning, I would go in my backyard, take my shoes off, and just walk on the on the wet grass to feel it, to be connected to something that was greater than me, right? That again allowed me to navigate my day uh, doing on uh, the pandemic uh, before Zoom calls or whatever the case may have been. I was good, you know, like people, ah, I'm good because I started my day grounding. So routine is important too. I, I, um, I, I kind of, I, I do the same thing. A lot of times it's 
I, I, I'm very conscious of what I have, and I realize that my life is better than any king from like the 1800s or whatever. <laughs> like I got running water and plumbing and, and, and a roof, you know, I got it, you know, it's like I'm good. And I think, you know, sometimes like it, it just, I have to, I have to say, I struggle with, unfortunately with other people. Mm. That's, that's always been my biggest problem because it's like, I don't like the idea of being martyred for somebody else's cause. I don't like mm. the idea of getting caught in somebody else's melodrama. Mm. And though I have been studying Buddhism, it's like, it, it's, it's like, that's the hardest one for me to let go. It's mm. just this, I don't have to let them do this. And, and one, of the, one of the key components in Buddhism is that you can't really stop the world from being what it is. No. You know, so it's like, okay, so I mean, I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted, I have a mask on. I can't stop other people from that. Mm. They're not, not going to change their minds. So, yeah. like, so what I can do is I can control what I have. Control you. And be very grateful for it because mm. like, I, I do, I will sometimes open my back door to let the dog in. I look at it and it's like, oh, this is the whole world. Like, I just, mm. like, look at this beautiful yard I have. Look yeah. at this. This well-behaved dog in this nice neighborhood, my, my, my nice neighbors, you know. It's like, and I just think like this is fantastic. So you know, and I've been in much worse spots in life. But it's, yeah. but you're right. It's like I, I mean, I used to be married, yeah. you know, and I used to be involved with, you know, blah 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 blah. And all of a sudden, like being just by myself has just taught me so much. You know, I was in, uh, I was in prison, and I was at an institution where. Um, this Muslim guy, Muslim chaplain came in and I, I went up to listen to them. He brought in a guest, a Muslim chaplain brought in a guest speaker who's also Muslim. And I remember the guy, he was from the Middle East somewhere. I don't know exactly what part. And the guest speaker came and he was like, he gave this powerful message um, about, again, perspective, gratitude, and your blessings. And after the talk, he was like, hey, could I go to, I would like to go to the unit to see where you guys live, right? And so the, the Muslim chaplain who was actually on staff with the Department of Correction went and spoke to the chaplain and said, hey, could, could I take this guest onto the yard and onto the prison yard because we're inside of the chapel? And they approved it. So we were, as we were walking on, this, on the prison yard, if you ever seen a prison yard, it's grass is cut, flowers, flower beds are neat. Like the mindset that some people think about prison is dirty or filthy environment. It, it literally looked like a, a campus, a college campus, right? With dormitories. And I, he walked across the yard and he was like, he was amazed of it because going back again to the imagery that many people may have about a prison environment. It's not that. So he saw like the grass is cut clean, flowers planted. Uh, the air was fresh, no litter, nowhere on the yard. Like this violent environment, there's not one piece of paper on the grass, right? <laughs> but he walked and he was like, wow. He said, in my country, my people would see that people who are living in here are kings. They, they would think that you or you guys are royal people from the royal family, the way you're living. And I remember asking, I was like, what do you mean? He said, that, and I said, you don't see the prison gates there? He's like, yeah, that mean that would let people know that don't have, like you are important. And the fence was to keep them out. And I was like, man, what the heck is this guy talking about, right? Going back into perspective. And as we walked into the units, he said, uh, he said, can I see your cell? I was like, yeah. And I'm going in there a little, you know, like, 
and he I had food like the prison allows you to get canteen food and stuff like that so I had food like under my table uh, my bed was made up I had a cooler with ice in it and had soda in it and he was like what and I also had a color TV and he was like wow you know he was like you're blessed I knew I had a blessing but I didn't know how big the blessing was and he gave me this uh, hadith. Uh, it's a saying from the Prophet Muhammad, who's the prophet uh, that Muslims follow, um, said that never look at the people at the higher part of the ladder. Always, if you're on the higher part, never look up, but always look down. And the reason for that is you look down to be grateful for your blessing, not look down on the people. When you're always looking up, you don't be able to count and see your blessings. And when he said that, that like, again, shifted, again, perspective. Like here it is, I'm in prison. I have clean sheets, clean mattress. I have food. I have a color TV. I have clean water. I can go to the shower, even though the cell was small. I still had an option to go and get hot water, right? Perspective. So when he walked out, going back again to journaling that tool of survival, I remember writing that down about gratitude. Be grateful for what you have in life changes everything for you. So when he left that day, you know, I'm, I'm like I said, I jumped up on my bunk. I wrote that that experience down and that just added to my perspective. Like I am in prison serving life, but there are a whole lot more people in the world that don't have what I have. And I committed a crime, they never committed a crime. It's just based upon the geographical location, their environment, that they are living in poverty, deep poverty. I'm not, I have ice water, I have a Coca-Cola that is cold. I have chips, rice, soups, meat, that I can cook in clean water. That changed everything for me. That was another game-changing aha moment for me when I thought about it. Like, yo, I can't keep complaining about it. So that just only accelerated me connecting to purpose. Okay. You gotta go? We got a few more minutes. Um, I, 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 I love that. I, 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 a few years ago, uh, I, I can tell you that my friend and I we were both going through a kind of uh, not good period, let's put it that way. Mm -hmm. um, I remember sitting down on the end of my, on the end of my mattress and mm -hmm. thinking, I got that 38 under the pillow if I need it. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, okay, too far. Like something, mm -hmm. you know, something, yeah, something's yeah. wrong here, right? And we started, uh, even just in an email every morning, we just sort of would send each other three things we're grateful for. Mm -hmm. It could be anything, you know. It's like, Absolutely anything, you know, and it was like, I'm grateful for pancakes, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I have the chance to actually tell you I'm not grateful for anything today. And that was another thing that was important, it was just like, I don't feel grateful today. Yeah. It's like, well then don't. Be grateful for the fact that you don't have to be grateful. And I was like, and it was like okay. And then I got my dog and that was, that gave me somebody who relied on me. Yeah, and it was yeah, like yeah. that little heartbeat in the house, it was just like, she needed me. And it's interesting because I've told people that, and they're like, well, was she a rescue dog? I was like, oh, she rescued you, right? Yeah, like, yeah. she did, you know? It's yeah, like, yeah. So I, I've been for, for about four or five years now, six years, eight years, whatever it's been, I don't really know, but it just the, the attention to the gratitude and things like that. Um, That's a game changer, bro. It, it really is, and it has helped unbelievably. Yeah. But, even, but even I, uh, you know, like I said, at some point, I think after 
two and a half years or whatever we've been <laughs> here two years now we've been sort of wandering around this sort of gray fog of this pandemic it just it gets to you after a while journaling is important like even like when friends would reach out about like in the pandemic and they're isolated completely on curfew I would say like take the time start journaling because journaling allows you to do a deep reflection on your life like what are you grateful for it takes time sometimes the more you do it you the deeper you have to go to see what you're blessed for and I share this before we close right this was an I remember in 1996 no 1994 before our, a major riot took place in prison I was in prison um, struggling with guilt um, that I killed this person and I have disconnected myself for a long period of wanting to acknowledge it, right? That's why I go back again to the five stages of incarceration was the victimization. I saw myself as a victim, which I didn't want to take ownership for the decision. But in this, I was shifted to take now to take ownership for the decision and begin to, again, take a step deeper into myself and it was on a, I can't remember what day it was, but it was around about four o'clock when the show, Oprah Winfrey show came on. It's crazy how things line up for you, right? I was watching the Oprah show at four o'clock in the afternoon, laying on my prison bunk, and Oprah was talking about gratitude journaling. Like how, no matter how dismal your day is, your life is, gratitude journal would change the trajectory of your life. Now, listen to that show. It was about, you know, an hour-long show, and she spoke about, like, five, writing down five things in the morning that you're grateful for, five things you're grateful for at night. Be consistent with that over a period of 60 to 90 days, and it would change your life. Of course, I was like, man, that shit ain't true. You know, here's, I'm in prison serving a life. How are you going to tell me, like, you know, just thinking about that is going to change me from wanting to kill myself, wanting to give up, wanting to just submerge myself in the prison culture to numb the pain that I felt, you know? But something to get up. When I, after a show went off, I went to the prison canteen and I got like three uh, journals like this. This is a journal. This, this is to this day I journal. I, I went and got three journals. And I started every day. That next day I got up, I did prayer, meditating, and I started writing in my journal like five things that I was grateful for in prison. Right? Before I went to bed, I would dig deep to find five things that I'm thankful for today before I go to sleep. I did it consistently to a point where like my attitude shifted going back into perspective. Everything shifted for me when I started like counting my blessings. So that when the people, when individuals who are prison with me say, man, how you doing today? Some people say, man, I feel like shit, right? But like, man, I hate this fucking every place. For me, I'm like, I love this place, man. And they will look at me like I'm crazy. You know, now when you say you start loving that place and people, you do something that is not out of the, out of the norm for the environment, now they think we need to get on some medication. Because you know, they were like, yeah, that time getting at you. They, that's what they would say. Oh, you, the time is affecting you when you say you love prison. But they didn't realize what I was doing at night and early in the morning was gratitude. I'm like, yo, man, I love this grits, man. Some good grits. Man, I love looking at the sun today. Man, it's beautiful. Man, I'm, I'm, man, I got a clean outfit on today. Bruh, they, they thought I was literally having a mental breakdown, but it was from the journaling, the gratitude journals. I 
started counting my blessings and it continued to shift for me. So no longer feeling depressed and sad, I started being grateful. Go to, oh, say a prayer over my food. Be like, God, thank you for this food. Instead of me saying, hey, some garbage here. Because the more you say it's garbage, the more you're going to start feeling and internalizing it. So man, it's some good food. All of that shifted. So I would say, again, you know, initially what we're talking about is how people in these pandemics and these lonely times, if you have never journaled, start journaling. Start counting your blessings. Find things that you can do to help someone else. Don't focus, focus on your life. There's so many other people out there in the world that need what you have. You know, as uh, I think I heard Les Brown said it, that you pass by a graveyard. <clears throat> you see so many people who have died with a dream in them. They have died with a cure to the world in them. That the world, they never released to the world because they were afraid to release it, right? So in this pandemic, we have to, I can encourage people to go deep within themselves, find their gift, find their purpose. Before you leave this world, give it to someone else. That, again, will be a thing that changes your perspective because you no longer worry about watching the news and the news telling you how depressing, how many people died from the hospitals. Over. I don't watch the news. I may just watch it for a second because the news is depressing. So I have, going back into that space, you control what stimulates you. Most people during the pandemic, what do they do? They watch the news every day. They watch it every day to a point where they can it consume them and they didn't see any glimmer of hope in this situation. I didn't watch the news during the pandemic. I didn't listen to bad news. I heard what it was, I knew what it was. I did not allow it to, to consume me. And a lot of people allowed it to consume them. It paralyzed them emotionally, physically. They was not able to do anything other than think about the pandemic. And they missed out two years of personal development, personal growth, if they would have took the time to look within. Well, I think that's also, you know, from the inside of the news world, that's, that's been tough. That's like, cause I've, I've struggled with that. It's like, I don't want to keep telling people the bad stuff, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah. it's not doing anybody any good now. You know, it's like, we know what's going on. Like, so, you know, so ease out. So, yeah. now I, um, I let, me, let me ask you one thing before, okay. I, before I hang up here. Uh, is, were you able to, um, were you able to sort of, with the, the family of the person you killed? Were you able to start yeah, that's family? like, yeah, absolutely. That's a, um, that has been one of the great blessings for me. And going back again to the law of reciprocity, learning to, in that interpersonal work, um, in my journaling, right, uh, I had one journal called a forgiveness journal. And in this forgiveness journal, I would write letters to myself every day about forgiving forgiveness. Because I believe that in order for me to receive forgiveness from anyone else, I had to forgive myself for a lot of things that I'd done to myself, right? And there were sections in my journal where I would do forgiveness letters to those who harmed me, right? Like, no bitterness, but just if a name popped up and an experience come instead of me internalizing that experience, I would write that experience, write a letter to that experience. And then from what is forgiveness of self, Forgiveness, forgiving those who harm me. And then it came to the third one, seeking forgiveness from those who I harmed. My victims were not the only people that I harmed. But I have, remember sitting in my cell writing numerous letters to those who I harmed, and my victims were one of them. And not just the family, but writing a dear Gary letter. Gary was the guy that I killed. Gary Goldinger is his name. I would write letters after letters to Gary Goldinger. 
is a way of me healing and a way of me releasing. And I would write letters to his family. And, but unfortunately, in the prison environment, you were not able to like mail that letter and that family got that letter. That's a whole other conversation. But in that, in that, going back again to releasing it into the universe, this into the spiritual realm, whatever we want to define that as, I released it. Years later, I never got a confirmation from a physical, something physical that the family had forgiven me. Um, but I went up for parole my first time in 2012, and one of the big decision makers for individuals who committed murder in prison is your victims. Like, they come and they advocate for you to make parole or not make parole. But anyway, I went up and I got denied the first time for my parole hearing, which was, again, um, it was disappointing, but a process rebounding back. But I thought, I'm like, did the family come and attest? Because you can't see, you won't know. So I remember recording my, um, getting the recordings for the parole hearing, and the family didn't attest me for making parole, which is kind of odd, right? Um, but I kept on working on this level of spiritual forgiveness. I made parole in 2015. And I was like, how did I mean, like, did the family uh, come and attest? I remember asking and it was like, no, the family didn't um, come attest your parole. So that was kind of odd. So, yeah, because I was, I was on a murder charge and most times, uh, in South, as I mentioned to you, a 3% chance of making parole, you don't make parole, especially if you have victims and family that advocate right. for you. I know guys are still in prison 30, 40 years because of victims of their family don't believe that they deserve a second chance. So when I made parole, I was grateful that I made parole, but then it left me with a level of curiosity, like what happened to the family? Why didn't they, why didn't they come and, uh, and challenge my parole? So maybe a year out, um, out of my sentence, um, a news reporter reached out to me, an organization reached out to me from Hilton Head and asked me to come and speak to this particular, at this event for gun violence for the youth. And so with that, they published this big article um, in the news, in Hilton Head Island newspaper about me coming back, um, what they said, uh, convicted murderer, return, turn, returning as a motivational speaker or something like that, which I dislike that title. I was going to say, that's a pretty loaded headline. Yeah, I, I, that's what I said. I hated the yeah, title. No, um, I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have called it that. Yeah, but I, I, it was something in those lines, right? But the in that, being in Hilton Head and Bluffton area is where my crime took place. It was a small area, so the family got wind of it. And the family reached out to me for the first time um, because I was free through social media, finding out, reached out, and... I thought it was gonna be uh, a very volatile, vulgar type uh, exchange, but it wasn't. The conversation was, we forgive you. We forgave you many years ago. We just decided to forgive you and we celebrate your transformation, your path to redemption, which was mind blowing, right? Um, and in that, I remember at this event that I, was, that I did speak to, uh, Gary's sister, I respect not mention her name, she spoke, she came up to me after the event was over and she asked could she hug me? Which was odd because I killed her brother. But she she was crying, she asked could she hug me? And in the, in the midst of the hugging, she mentioned how angry she was at me in the earlier part of her life. She was a teenager when this happened. 
she wasn't even teen, she was still young, like 10, 11 years old, and how she was angry, but through that, she found forgiveness and she got faith, and she she forgave me and her brother for the crime, you know, because she was angry at her brother as well. And she forgave me and she said, I'm, we are proud of you, meaning my entire family, because their entire family was reaching out to me at the same time. And now, to, it's been seven years since I've been home, um, and it has been that way. I was able to apply for a pardon um, a couple of years ago and receive the pardon by the state of South Carolina, which again is rare. Why? Because again, I was convicted of murder, right? <laughs> convicted of murder, um, and they don't grant a full pardon. And that means that all of my rights are reinstated with a pardon. And But in the midst of this, Gary's family, um, his brother and his father, because once you go up, the parole board would send a letter to the family to see if they're going to attest it, which they didn't attest me making parole, and they definitely was not going to attest me getting a pardon. So the father and the son, the son called me and said, hey, we just got this letter in the mail about you getting a pardon. Pop said, meaning the dad said, do whatever we can to help him get a pardon. Like, we're not going to attest him make, getting a pardon. This is Gary's family? Yeah, Gary's family. Wow. And his brother... Um, to this day, we, in a, we used to communicate, but his brother was like, what could I do? Like, how could I help you make sure you get this part and you deserve it? So he's like, I was like, man, I don't know. I was like, write a letter, call the parole board, let them know that you're the family. He said, well, I'll call them and let them know. He said, even if I have to drive down there for the hearing, I'll come. But because of COVID, they didn't have, they just had a virtual hearing, but he was willing to travel to come speak on my behalf to receive a pardon which I eventually did get the pardon September uh, September the 20th, 2020, I believe. I got the full pardon, but it was going back again to that level of forgiveness um, that I received from the family. And I truly believe it was through faith. It was through me doing the work, transforming my life. Um, but the, the, I said, disappointing thing for me, or the regret, a moment of regret for me is being that South Carolina Probation and Parole Board being that I was on parole before I got the pardon, no one was willing to facilitate uh, a meeting with me and Gary's father, right? Even after, I remember I, was, I, I told my parole officer, like, hey, this family reached out to someone in my family and they wanna, they wanna have a meeting with me, the father. Um, and they was like, no, you can't do it. And I said, even if the father requested it, someone could help facilitate it. They refused to facilitate it, which was. Um, but, you know, we did this interview. You can maybe go online and look it up. Um, uh, the interview, I can send you the link to this interview. But just like this, a news reporter got my story. I spoke to Gary's father via this way, which I hated because I wanted to literally sit down with the, his father in his home to have a conversation, a dialogue about anything that he wanted to talk about. And um, he eventually died. He, he died um, before I got a pardon and was able to go and sit down and sit down and talk to him because that was one of his requests is that he wanted to sit down with me to ask questions like what happened? But it was not about what happened that night. It was what happened to you that transformed your life. You know, I'm pretty sure he would have asked, that would have been a follow-up question about that night but the, he mentioned in this interview, I want to know what changed his life. He said something happened that changed his life. And I, and I, and I well, I recorded something to send to him a personal message, like what happened that night or what happened to transform my life. 
is that I made peace with your son's death. I apologize and atone and I live and honor your son today in everything that I do as a, as a human being. So, yeah.